Who am I? Why am I here? Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. I shall not seek and I will not accept the nomination of my party for another term as your president. Tear down this wall. And the wall just got 10 feet taller. We're going to California and Texas and New York. We're going to South Dakota and Oregon and Washington and Michigan. And then we're going to Washington, D.C. to take back the White House. From the frosty shores of Minnesota, it's election shock therapy. Break the glass, guys. How's it going? Pretty good. Going. Andy, how's your interim wrapping up? Good. I've got a few more um, tests to grade, but getting close, getting close. How was the play? It was great. They did a really good job. Um, Andy, students did a play for for, yeah, for interim. They, yep. So our humanities class, as usual, all five sections performed um, a Shakespeare play. In this case, Henry the Fourth, Part One, um, and it was really good. I mean, they did a great job. Two of the five sections didn't have to be prompted even once during the performance, which, considering we give them all of about a week and a half to memorize their lines is phenomenal and even the other three there wasn't that much so yeah it was great it was a lot of fun matt how was your revolution in political development course revolutionary no not really um but it was good um, did you storm the capital <laughs> no we did not ah, we that was the storming of the capital <laughs> um yeah so we our our focus um in this course was sometimes the course is taught in a comparative way looking at multiple revolutions um across sort of you know modern history but we focused uh, primarily on american revolution development uh, more of an american political thought course and so it was fun um you know whenever you know trump was was impeached for you know a second time i said well we're right in the middle of reading the federalist papers so let's let's read what hamilton said about impeachment um and that sort of thing so Lots to talk about, good discussions, and yeah, it was fun. I had fun. Hopefully my students had fun. <laughs> Sam, how was your interim? Oh, it was great. I taught uh, CWC online with uh, with Charlie Goldberg. Uh, I finished my grading yesterday. Today was the hard pivot to spring, so that's nice. what I've been doing. Nice. The hard pivot to spring is also a great album title. I'm, I'm in for that. Yeah. I did not teach this interim which is why I'm coming to you all now with a, a little bit of an ethical dilemma. Um, um, or at least, at least I'll, I'll just put it this way. Today has been an emotional roller coaster for me. Wow. All in the, all in the span of about 15 minutes. <laughs> so because I'm not teaching, I've been working from home most of the time. Yep. And I'm up here as I am right now in my guest bedroom with my microphone and my computer and in my webcam and the whole thing. But my window in my guest bedroom looks out over the street. And a couple of hours ago, the doorbell rang. And I glanced out the window, and I saw there was a FedEx truck uh, on our street. Not surprising. You know, in this COVID era, packages of all kinds are delivered at all times a day. And I thought, well, I better run out there and grab that. So I went downstairs, opened up the door, and to my wondering eye should appear a three-foot stack of three boxes of Jenny's ice cream. <laughs> now, let me tell you a little bit about this. So for those of you who are uninitiated, uh, Jenny's ice cream is a ice cream chain that was uh, birthed in Columbus, Ohio uh, by Jenny Brittenbauer. It is, in my opinion, uh, the greatest ice cream in the world. It's, um, it's very fancy. And apparently, my wife had bought me some for my birthday, which was a couple days ago. So... 
But let me say, three and a half feet, three and a half feet of ice cream is a lot, right? So I bring these packages in, and to, to be fair, these are shipped, and so there's a lot of dry ice packed in there. There's a lot of packaging, yeah. and so a box holds actually about six pints of ice cream. So they're they're pretty. It's once you get into the center of it, it's the actual ice cream. It's it's not that not that much, right? But it's still plenty, right? A box yeah. is plenty, right? And, and so I open up the first box, and there's a card inside. And here's what the card says. Happy birthday, Daddy. Love, Sabrina and Tommy. So that's pretty cool, right? So like, oh, they got it for my birthday, and it just came a few days late. So I'm putting the ice cream into the freezer, and I open up the third box, which, by the way, is the biggest box, right? So there's two small boxes, which uh, were for me. Over this third box, and there's another note. Here's what the note says. <clears throat> our thoughts and prayers are with our favorite family during this difficult time. Sending you the closest treat to Jericho's CWG forever. Love 11 for 11. This is not my ice cream guys. <laughs> I got somebody else's ice cream and not only did I get somebody else's ice cream, it was sent to them in condolence, right? <laughs> Thoughts and prayers during this difficult time. I don't know what they're going through, but I stole their ice cream. Now, I looked online. Oh, wait a minute. Wait a minute. You didn't steal their ice cream. So I looked at the package. I looked at the outside of the package. It was shipped to me. So they had my shipping label on the outside. So this is not FedEx's fault. This is somebody at the Jenny's plant's fault. And I got um, basically doubled the amount of ice cream I was supposed to receive. And you confirmed um, this with your wife. She didn't order that much ice cream, right? Oh, correct. No, this is clearly sent in Aaron. So she has already reached out to Jenny's to at least let them know that we have received this right. this, right. this poor bereaved family's ice cream. Yeah. But it's it's ice cream. It's perishable. It's not like I can box it back up and yeah. ship it back to them. <laughs> That's sort of thing. It's not leaving my house. I'm going to yeah. eat their ice cream. But I don't know if I feel good about it. I'm gonna be eating. I'm, I'm be eating it and praying for whatever they're going through. Sam has I mean, his hand up. Sam, help me feel better about taking this other family's this bereavement ice cream. Well, you didn't take their ice cream. Theirs is just gonna come later. You know that Jenny's is gonna make right on this, and probably actually, if if they're the company that I believe that they are, they're gonna more than make right on it. Uh, you can't send this anywhere. Um, so it is it is yours. Now, here's the thing I would say though. Yeah. The, the problem with what you said is you're going to be eating this ice cream. You've got three oh. friends. You've got three friends on this call, mm. and you've got what I would I, what I would argue is way too much ice cream. Yeah. And yeah. none of us have yeah. probably ever really had Jenny's ice cream. At least I know I haven't. So you know, I think you could hook some friends up here. Uh huh. Yeah. I think. So in fact, I'll go a step further. <laughs> I was going to say this is not an ethical dilemma, Chris. This is a like charitable sort of opportunity, right? Yeah. Right, That's right. right. This is a, uh, what I have here is a distribution of resources problem. <laughs> um, <laughs> yes. Indeed. All right, guys. So let me ask you this. If I'm going to uh, bring a little bit of Jenny's into the apartment this next week, stuff it in the freezer and have a little tasting party, um, is there any kind of flavor? Are you interested in, are you interested in going like kind of norm, normie, normcore, or a little bit adventurous? I want a bit of both. I want I want to yeah. try something. I want to try like what their kind of standard, like a standard flavor from them. Because mm -hmm. that's a gauge. Which would, like, well, which would be salty caramel. Salty right. caramel. Like, so how good is this? And then I want a little bit of 
swing for the fences. I mean, if they have a breakfast burrito ice cream, Chris, I want to try it. I think the swing for the fences you're going to be getting is um, goat cheese with red cherries. Oh, that sounds great. That yeah. sounds awesome. What do you give people who are bereaved? Like, what kind of ice cream do you send them? I'm curious what was in that package. Um, it was a pretty happy set of flavors. There was a lemon parfait with blueberries. Okay. There was a peanut butter with chocolate flex. That's a good choice. Um, there was a uh, um, the, the the goat cheese one was part of their was part of their mix. So okay, okay. yeah, yeah I, think, I think you want rich rich flavors in bereavement, right? Yeah, you want kind of you don't want. I mean, you don't want it to be like austere when you're doing bereavement. <laughs> no sorbets. Come on, man. What are you yeah, thinking? Right, right. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, send them your, their favorite thing. That's what you do. Mm-hmm. You know their favorite. Wow. Yeah. So oh, thanks for helping me get through that. You'll be seeing some ice cream showing up in the department <laughs> next week, I think. You have to let me know when this is happening. Oh, I will. Oh, I will. All right, guys. Um, on to more serious topics. The um, I think it's fair to say the impeachment um, has taken a turn, and I think we need to address that uh, first. And then we want to turn to a couple main topics of what um, our political science uh, knowledge and scholarship can tell us about uh, sh- some of the shifting news stories, specifically what the, um, the turning point in the impeachment, the inflection point in the impeachment tells us about the Republican Party and the relationship to the exiting Trump administration and how that might impact Congress and how it will impact the Biden administration. So that's a lot to do. We're also going to make sure we end up today talking about our good friend Andy and some of his forthcoming plans. How's that for a tease? Um, well, first things first, guys. Uh, Matt put in the uh, in the agenda today. The articles of impeachment are DOA. Um, first of all, uh, Matt, what do you mean by that? Uh, dead on arrival. Um, so um, I'm sure most of you have probably seen the news uh, by this point, um, but. Basically, so we, so we know the impeachment trial in the Senate will begin on February the 8th. So that was scheduled probably um, four or five days ago at this point. Um, but more recently than that, um, there was a motion by Senator Rand Paul of Kentucky um, mm-hmm. to declare that the impeachment trial was um, was or for the purposes of convicting and then barring the president from holding future office, which would be the whole point of this exercise, that this sort of this trial was unconstitutional. In other words, that we need to have a discussion that indeed the president who has already left office cannot be impeached and then barred. Um, and basically, almost all of the Republicans joined in favor of the motion. So 45 out of 50. Uh, the five exceptions were Collins, Murkowski, Sass, Romney and to me. Um, all the Democrats predictably voted against it, so it, the motion was rejected 55-45. Um, so what this indicates is that you will probably only have five or six Republicans who in the trial will actually vote to convict. Right. Maybe you'll get a few more, but probably not. It's pretty hard to to have a vote of you know that signals this sort of thing and then go on to to convict. So um, so probably you're going to get those five or six voting to convict um, and not much more. So this, you know, looks like it might be fulfillment of the prediction that I made, you know, last EST, right? So you're either going to get, you know, maybe five, six, seven votes 
to convict or you'll get like 17 or 18. 17 is sort of the threshold. You're not probably going to get much in between um, because there's there's no point for these people of voting to convict um, if you don't actually get a conviction, right? So it's not going to be that critical mass. So probably this is going to be something of a formality that the Senate walks through over the period of one to two weeks. But um, it looks like we already know the conclusion to this particular saga. I've heard two different stories that I want to give. I think you can give some quick clarity to Matt. And that first one is that when the impeachment trial is going on, the Senate can't do any uh, anything else. They basically comes to a halt. And others have said no, they can do this part of the time, and then part of the time they can do the regular business of the Senate. Can you have a sense of which one it is? Can the Senate be functional in other ways while the impeachment's going on? I mean, so the Senate can basically, I mean, operates according to its own rules. And the Senate can change the rules um, to do more or less whatever it wants, um, as long as there's sufficient agreement on those rules, right? So, um, and and how all that sort of pans out and practical practicality um, it gets really complicated. But but you know from from everything I read, you know we know that the Democrats. Um, you know, do want to keep moving forward with a Biden agenda, confirming nominees, trying to hash out some sort of compromise on the COVID relief legislation. Um, so as far as I know, um, you know, the trial is going to go on two weeks, but the rest of the Senate's business is not going to be halted. It will be prolonged, um, but yeah. it's not going to be halted. Um, I'd be really surprised if, if the if if we saw a complete stop to, to the rest of the Senate's agenda. So, right. And under normal circumstances, sure, but we're at the beginning of a new administration, right? And so that's kind of, and, and that's the time when, when you know, the party that's taken control of the trifecta wants to get its stuff done, right? Yeah. So it's kind of unprecedented that we have that situation on top of an impeachment trial. Right. I've even heard rumblings. I mean, like yesterday about, you know, Senator Kane, Tim Kane from Virginia, you know, saying maybe we should even you know, look at some kind of motion to censure the president. So some kind of lesser penalty than impeachment, since it's pretty clear at this point that impeachment is not going to succeed. Um, and we've already done that, right? I mean, we've, you know, so what's the point? Um, so is there something we could kind of rally around? I mean, is, is there any chance that goes anywhere, Matt, do you think, or not really? I don't know. I mean, I think there's enough Democrats that will want to have the full-blown trial, present their yeah. evidence, maybe hope to persuade. I think, you know, some Democrats will probably more in the middle will say like, well, if we're not going to get impeachment, we'd much rather get this other stuff done. Right. So we don't yeah. want to prolong the trial. So I think there's still going to be a trial. I'd be surprised if the trial is completely short circuited. They do have to vote on the articles. So my guess is yeah. it's not going to be a super protracted, you know, two week call bajillion witnesses sort of deal, because if the conclusions foregone, there's not a lot of advantage in, in sort of you know, for anyone really to, to draw it out. So um, they, they might end up voting to sort of censure, but that's a separate vote. So you could have that in addition to a relatively fast Senate yep. trial. Um, that's not longer than a couple of weeks. That would be my guess. But um, of course, all of this is sort of in flux. Yeah. So I have a couple of questions here and uh, they mostly revolve around Mitch McConnell. So um, it was, it was notable. And I think, um, 
Democrats or Democratic pundits, at least, put a lot, hung a lot of hope on the fact that McConnell came out with pretty strong condemnatory language of not only the Capitol insurrection, but also the president's role in citing it. And McConnell directly linked Trump's actions to the uh, Capitol insurrection. And he, at the very least, he didn't say he would vote to remove the president, but right. he did say that he would, he would support impeachment. Um, which he can certainly do since he's a senator, his actual decision to impeach is in the House. So now that the vote is in the Senate, he gets to deal with it. Interestingly, though, McConnell didn't, or what McConnell went along with Rand Paul's motion. He was one of the 45 Republican senators who tried to get the uh, uh, get impeachment kicked out of the Senate. So what, where, what's McConnell's play here? Um, it seemed like initially he might have even somebody who might vote for impeachment. And now it seems like he's really kind of moving back into um, the Republican, at least Trump Republican center of thinking. What? Yeah. I think that, I mean, my, my, my read on McConnell here is if I have to try to get into his head for a second is in his ideal world, if, if he, if you just gave all power to Mitch McConnell right now, right. I think just his ideal world. That's true. His ideal world, right. <laughs> if he would probably love to say, yep, I'm going to exclude Donald Trump from being eligible to run for president again. Right. Let's get him out of there. Let's be done. I think that's, you know, it's bad for the party. He, he hurt us. He lost me, my majority in the Senate. Right. I mean, I think that's probably what's going through his head, but Mitch McConnell is also eminently practical and realistic. He does not want to end up kind of fighting the fights that Liz Cheney's fighting right now over on the house side where she, you know, got too strongly in with the impeachment crowd. And now she's hated by the kind of right wing of her party. Right. Um, so he would only want to like fire the bullets if he's sure he can bring down his prey. Right. And I think at this point he doesn't think he can. And if he doesn't think he can, um, then you don't, you don't start shooting, right? Like you, you stay and you, you keep your powder dry and you, you vote with the people who are, you know, ending the debate um, because unless you can get the 17 Republicans who are willing to, you know, remove vote to remove, which is meaningless, but then vote to bar from future office. Um, you can't, you can't make that play. Otherwise you're just, you're hurting your, your base in the party too much. Yeah. Yeah. And if you're, you're, if you're a, a leader, either in the majority, or the minority, a lot of your power comes from your ability to maintain cohesiveness in your caucus. Right. Yep. And so, you can try to, you know, run interference or provide cover for them, which probably explains his initial comments about being, you know, open to impeaching and saying that the offenses that Trump committed were, you know, maybe deserving of, you know, him being barred from office. But um, so it involves, you know, providing cover, but it also involves canvassing um, your members, um, seeing where they're at and seeing, you know, what sort of support you can get from them. And as a Senate majority or a minority leader, you have relatively few tools, right? Because each senator has a, an enormous amount of sort of individual clout and power, right? And they and every senator has a number of sort of procedural tools at their disposal that they can use. Um, and so there's a good deal of independence. Um, so McConnell can't sort of necessarily whip his his party to go the direction that he wants. Um, he is a leader, but he's also a follower too, um, just by mm -hmm. the nature of the way the Senate works. And so I think he's canvassed his party, realizes there's nowhere close to 17 votes. There's no ability to persuade a few or broker some sort of compromise that will get the last few on board. So we have that critical mass. He knows that's not going to happen. And so he's not going to die on that hill, right? right. Um, basically, there's no hill that McConnell is willing to die on 
he's only going to battle on hills that he know he can win. That's mm -hmm. how McConnell works, right? He sees this <laughs> winning yeah. prospect, and so yeah. he's not going to he's not going to try to fight for this particular piece of turf. Right. I mean, I think there are things he he cares about deeply, right? But oh, he, right. he's right. very yeah. instrumental in how he gets there. And so just as he used Donald Trump as a vehicle for his own policy preferences, right? Um, you know, the question of whether or not to try to bar Donald Trump from office is also, you know, kind of like, it's instrumental, right? I mean, like, do you, you know, can, will this help me advance my objectives or not? Um, and what he's right now, I think, reading is trying to do that would not advance my objectives. Therefore, I'm not going to do it. So that's how I read it. Yeah. Yeah, McConnell might be viewing uh, Trump as a vehicle for his policy objectives, but now that he's on that vehicle, he's finding it really hard to get off. Um, <laughs> right, and, yeah. and and this bridges us to our sort of our sort of next uh, conversation, which is what's the future of the relationship between Donald Trump and the Republican Party? When we last polled, uh, I'm using 538 data here. Um, Donald Trump's uh, overall approval ratings uh, were in the mid-30s, somewhere around 35% or so. But his approval rating amongst Republicans, which had which had taken a dive, was still in the 80s. Yep. Um, and so uh, Trump remains very, very popular amongst the Republican Party, uh, people who identify as, as Republicans. Um, and that really explains why, even though uh, there's a lot of disapproval of Trump's actions within Senate Republicans, including their majority leader. There really isn't the political will there to remove him or prevent him from running for office in the future. Yeah. Uh, really, the core of the Republican Party is profoundly a Donald Trump Republican Party. Yep. Yeah, and, um, a little more polling data. So Politico um, recently had a poll that said 56% of Republican voters believe that Trump should either probably or definitely run for president again in 2024. 56%, so okay. But, you know, considering the recent events, 56% saying that's it's a good idea that he should run. Mm -hmm. uh, and only 36% of Republicans think he shouldn't. Like, that's still pretty, yeah. pretty amazing, right? Yep. I mean, Josh Hawley, who is, you know, sort of the most hated senator right now, um, he had a drop in his approval rating amongst Republicans, but there, he still has a 63% approval amongst Republicans, right? Although it was interesting, just as a quick aside, uh, Hawley said definitively he is not running for president in 2024. And I think we have to chalk that up to being knowing that Trump's candidacy is on the table. Yeah, yeah, no, I think that's right. Um, and there's just a lot of sort of infighting right now within various state sort of GOP organizations um, and, and even at the congressional level, too. So Liz Cheney, third ranking Republican, she's being targeted. Um, we know that um, that the Arizona legislature just censured um, various sort of Republican leaders in the state who basically broke ranks with Trump. Um, there's some just absolutely bad, batty stuff going on with the Oregon GOP, which recently claimed that um, the the Capitol insurrection was a false flag operation, basically, of the deep state. So this is the official statement of the Oregon GOP, right? Um, they're basically trying to rewrite history with conspiracy theories right now. Um, and, and so there's quite a few state organizations that are very Trumpy. Um, and, you, right. and this goes all the way down to sort of the 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 GOP base as well um and so so I guess the question is kind of what happens next and, and maybe we should we should talk about that mm -hmm. well 
if I can just follow my nose here, I'm, I'm so I'm the international relations guy. So I get to make um, utterly uh, uninformed speculation about this. But right. It seems to me like the, if I'm a, if I'm a, if I'm a betting person and I'm not Bethel, but if I was a betting person, I would bet Trump runs in 2024 because the Senate will not remove him from office or remove his ability to run. And he is the clear favorite uh, to win a primary in 2024 to run either against Joe Biden seeking reelection or someone else from the Democratic Party if Joe Biden decides not to seek a second term. Is there anything that stands in the way of that? I mean, yeah, well, you know, these things we've talked about before, right? I mean, um, four years is a long time. Um, Trump is an old man, <laughs> right? Um, Joe Biden's presidency is eight days old, and we don't know how that's going to go. We don't know if Joe Biden himself will be a popular option in four years or if he'll be stepping aside for some younger Democrat. Um, you know, the, the ability uh, to beat an incumbent president, as we talked about a good bit last year, right, has a lot to do with that person, right? I mean, the incumbents running um, tends to be a referendum on them, right? So either we could have a very vulnerable Joe Biden um, or we could have a triumphant Joe Biden. I think it's very unlikely we have an, a vulnerable Joe Biden running for re-election because if Joe Biden is not doing great, he's probably not going to run, right? I mean, he's old. Um, he's even older than Trump, right? So um, so I think either Biden's wildly popular or very you know, re reasonably popular and therefore goes for re-election, or he goes ahead and uses his age as a reason to step aside, in which case then Trump finds himself running against probably a much younger Democrat. Is that a race you think you can win? Maybe if the Democrats have really struggled in power and, or, you know, just fortune has been against them. But otherwise, I mean, I think it's going to be a, a hard slog for the president, not to necessarily win the nomination, but to win the election. And then do you, the question, if you're Donald Trump with your big ego, right, is do you want to lose another national election? Um, and I think that's a real interesting question. <laughs> I mean, like, yeah, you know, that's a real possibility. Yeah, yeah I, I agree with that. And I mean, you know, he's going to have an uphill climb and that's going to take a lot of discipline and organization. Um, and he doesn't have a lot of that. Um, so, so I think, you know, maybe, maybe we can sort of create something of a model of, of how to think about Trump and sort of the GOP. Um, so maybe we need to different, and I've been kind of tinkering with this. I want to, I want to see what you guys think. So, All so right. maybe we need to differentiate between Trump's presence, number one, his influence, number two, and then his like movement. Um, so his presence, his influence, his movement. So, um, and, and as we move through these categories, presence, influence, and then sort of the broad Trump movement, we move further away from the center of Trump's personality. So that's how you should think about the relationship between these three categories. So, um, so I, I do wonder if Trump's immediate presence is likely to continue to fade, right? It's already faded. He doesn't have the presidential bully pulpit. He can't command the same sort of media attention because he's no longer president and journalists don't have to report on every single thing that he says. And he can't say as much um, or at least get the same sort of audience because he's basically been muzzled um, by these social media platforms almost across the board. He's been deplatformed and it's actually been quite effective. He's not made a public appearance. Now, it's not to say that he couldn't, but trying to get traction and get his message out there is is going to be difficult, right? So I do wonder if his, his presence is going to fade. 
Um, and perhaps his presence is going to fade faster than his influence, right? So he can still make, you know, rumors about running in 2024. He can still blast people who haven't been sufficiently loyal, maybe hold some rallies, um, maybe try to, you know, conjure some primary threats against his sort of chief enemies, right? Um, and so in that way, he'll still have an influence, even if his presence is diminished. Um Right. And I guess the question is, how how much longer can Trump sort of keep up these loyalty tests when his presence is diminished? I mean, that's kind of the question, right? Trump loyalty tests are still very alive and well, but how, how long can that be sustained? Um, can that be sustained past 2022? I don't know. Um, if his presence continues to fade, I, I'm not sure. Um, but, but, but let's think about the movement, right? So the leftover movement still has a ton of energy and, and numbers, right? And so the question is, where is it going to go? And I think the thing to realize here is, you know, Trump didn't create this movement sort of ex nihilo, right? With just the sheer force of his personality, right? right. He tapped into a very large sort of current, right? In 2016, and he channeled it, right? Yep. He's managed to weaponize sort of the energy that's been accumulating sort of in the right wing sort of ecosystem for, for decades now, right? He's managed to sort of amplify it and channel it. And the energy has not dissipated. We've seen that, right? Yeah. It, it might have made a little bit in its energy and its electoral power, perhaps, especially because it's, you know, at least somewhat driven by sort of Trump's personality cult, but, but that sort of fundamental energy um, is, is not going to dissipate. And so the question is where, where does it go next? Right. Mm -hmm. um, will it go for, will it go for Trump or maybe will, it will move on to its, its sort of next set of persons who are most likely to effectively channel that energy. Yep. Yeah. What do you guys think? I, I have more to say, but I'm curious to get your mm -hmm. thoughts. Well, I think that they're, I mean, you're right. These are three separate things, but they feed into each other. Yeah. That would be my first reaction. Um, Trump's influence and the movement are bolstered in his direction uh, by his presence, right? Um, so if his presence leaves quickly uh, or more definitively, uh, and I would say if he never regains a, um, a, a large public platform, if this sort of deplatforming um, persists and is robust in the way that it has been in the last week, then I think his presence declines dramatically. And I think the influence he has that he's tapped into, like you rightly said, really spins out of his control pretty quickly. There might He becomes sort of a hagiographic uh, figure, like Ronald Reagan has often been for the traditional GOP, uh, yeah. but not someone who has any real meaningful control over how his image is used. Um, and the movement then becomes its, its own its own entity. And I think we even see a version of this in, um, in the Capitol protests, right? Um, the Proud Boys are now disavowing Donald Trump, even though they like the things that he, immobil he uh, mobilized them to do, right? So I, th I think his presence is required for his own political prospects, does, if that makes some sense. Yeah, Andy, yeah. what do you think? Yeah, no, I think that's, I think that's right. I mean, I think it's, it's interesting. There are some early signs that he is trying to stay somewhat involved, right? I mean, like there's a report today of him and Kevin McCarthy meeting about trying to retake the House, right, um, for 2022, which does suggest some sort of, you know, desire to be involved in political in leadership. But I don't know. I just don't. I don't know if he'll have the, the 
the willingness to grit it out in four years in opposition, right? Um, and to what end? Like, I, I just, yeah, I just keep coming back to like, I'm not sure what are his real chances to regain power in 24 as opposed to simply regain the Republican nomination. Yeah, I don't know. Right. And, and so much changes. I mean, so, you know, Trump really has one kind of tool, right? It's sort of his his sort of megaphone, his loudspeaker, yeah. right, which has been, if not muted, then its volume yep. has been drastically turned down, right? He doesn't have sort of good relationships with other people that he can sort of lean on to try to, you know, build a network and, and he doesn't have sort of organizational capacity either. He has one tool, right? Yep. And that tool has, has basically been, uh, right. be, is a lot less effective now. And so I do wonder if he's going to be able to, you know, I mean, yeah, we're going to hear about him. He's going to be in the news and that's to his advantage. And he will do all these things if only to sort of keep himself in the news. Right. Cause that has its own. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. yeah. Right. And yeah. I'll agree with you. He has to play his cards right, but that's a but. Don't overlook the power of this tool, right? He was he did not really have an organized campaign in 2016. He did right. not have party endorsement in 2016. He was able to use this one this one weird trick, um, this one thing to to really uh, get yep. the nomination. And there's no reason to think that he couldn't do that again in 2024, sure. unless there is some kind of robust, systematic, dedicated effort to keep him out of the public sphere. And I'm not sure that the various social media companies and traditional media companies are have the coordination and willingness to do that. Donald Trump is a great story. And all it takes is the Wall Street Journal to say, okay, New York Times and the Washington Post aren't going to cover Donald Trump. We will. Yep. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. No, it's true. Yeah. Yeah. So so the question is, can he find ways to to going back up on his on his megaphone, right? Yep. Um, and mm -hmm. yeah, there's and there's market incentives for various other sort of actors right. to um, to assist with that. So yep. yeah, that's true. Yep. I like the way you framed this, though, Matt. I like this idea of the movement existing in relationship with Donald Trump, but also separate from Donald Trump. Right. And there's sort of this this lingering effect of him in that. You know, we talk about, and I, I'm American political scientists talk a great deal about the party deciding, and we we we, we interrogated this question extensively in 2016. Um, did the party decide? It seems like well, there's plenty of Republicans who actively don't want Donald Trump to be the leader of their party. Mitch McConnell does not like Donald Trump. Uh, Mitt Romney does not like Donald Trump. And, and a lot of these Republicans, a lot of the 45 Republican senators who voted uh, to throw out his impeachment don't like him as their party leader, but they also recognize that he is one of the most powerful tickets they have. Um, and I think they recognize too, that if you have a, if you, if you impeach the pre president from your own party and prevent him from running for office in the future, you're condemning yourself to probably at least four years or eight years of democratic presidency, if not more. Right. I mean, this was, they were trying to avoid an, an own goal here. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're, the rhetoric you're getting on that is just like, we have to let the people decide and we can't overrule the people. And so it's a sort of democracy argument. You're getting people like Senator Rubio making that case. I mean, um, you know, Matt and I were actually talking about this off air yesterday, right? And it's like, 
you know, there are always limits on democracy, right? There's always limits on what people are allowed to do, right? Well, you cannot elect Arnold Schwarzenegger president, whether you want to or not, because he wasn't born an American citizen, right? Mm -hmm. And that's been a, you know, a, a rule since the very beginning of our constitution, right? And so Congress does have this power, right, to, to preclude certain things or to remove presidents. Um, and they've gotten very timid about exercising it, and they've gotten very partisan in the way they exercise it. Mm -hmm. um, and I do think that's that's unfortunate, right? But unfortunately, that I mean, that argument of that kind of democracy argument—we can't overrule the people, and the people like Donald Trump. So, you know, it's is is you know sort of seems to be carrying the day. The problem with that, of course, is what what if the people sometimes want to do things that are destructive, right? Well, if they're being driven by by base passions, right? And here we're back to something I bring up periodically in this podcast, which is Plato's critique of democracy, right? Is that democracy is not a good form of government because it is driven by whatever the passion of the moment is. That can be good things, um, but more often than not, it's not, right? Um, yep. Which is why it's not a very virtuous form of government in Plato's way of thinking of it. Um, and I think that's kind of what we're seeing here. Yeah, I mean, in some ways we can, I mean, we, we can and sh we should critique our elected officials for sort of their failures to, you know, adhere to, you know, adhere to principles of, you know, supporting our constitution and the rule of law and et cetera. Um, but ultimately, you know, they, you know, yes, they are thought leaders um, and they can lead their people, um, you know, and, and say, I'm taking this policy position. And we know that when a leader says, I'm taking this policy position, that leader is well regarded within the party, the partisans and the rank and file tend to follow along, right? We know this. Right. Mm -hmm. We also yeah. know that to some extent, you know, we, um, you know, leaders are responsive to, to what their constituents want. And, and we're seeing that right now with Republicans in the Senate, right? I mean, there's, we're hearing rumblings of just the overwhelming sort of wave of, of base, you know, bombardment of, of messages and phone calls that these senators are getting, like, don't impeach Trump. We will vote against you if you do, right? Um, you know, so, so to some extent, we, you know, in democracy, you get, you don't get the leaders that are good. You get the leaders that you, that you've earned, right? You deserve, right? Um, it, our leaders are only as good as sort of the citizens that elect them, right? And and we're definitely seeing that right now. Um, just to get back to Andy's point, you know, their democracy, you know, is a good thing, right? We want representation. We want the people to have a say in their government. Self-government is a good thing, right? And we do this through a constitution and, you know, leaders who are held accountable through elections. Um, but too much democracy can be a bad thing. Um, right. And we have moved away from a sort of a system in which sort of, you know, party leaders sort of tended to make decisions on who was going to be the candidate, you know, for the party in a you know particular election, right, in the general election. We've moved yeah. away from that into basically letting letting rank and file um, voters make that decision through primaries, right? Um, right. And really, if, you, if you're wanting to find ways to deal with this problem, you would have to reform the primary system. That's what a lot of this really boils down to, I think. Uh, primary system and probably uh, redistricting and and partisan gerrymandering too. Um, actually, not as much. Um, so that's that's actually something that you hear a lot of people sort of trotting out that um, partisan gerrymandering. So the creative sort of um, sort of drawing of legislative district lines is actually sort of exacerbating and contributing to polarization. It's actually doing very little to do that. Um, so do you, that's interesting. Why do you say that? 
Um, so they're like, there's there's research on this, but basically it comes down to like the real the real driver is not in how these districts are drawn. It has to do with sorting and where people decide to live. Sure. Um, and then when they move somewhere, um, you know, if they do move somewhere um, that is, you know, in which the culture, the political culture is different than theirs, you know, they might even shift, you know, it, towards becoming like the people they live around, right? But otherwise, people tend to live around people that are like them politically, right? So, so actually, polarization has much more to do with sorting than partisan gerrymandering. Hmm. I'm not saying gerrymandering has little effect, but it's not huge. Like, just go Google it. Um, Brookings Institute has this great has this great sort of article on it. Just political scientist, if you want some resources on it. But um, yeah, I, I now we should deal with gerrymandering. Like that's for for other reasons. But it's dealing with that alone is going to have a negligible effect on on our polarization problem, which is huge. Right, right. I mean, because it's not a creation of that, but it's yeah, yeah. Well, let's talk about. Um, perhaps what are the effects of too much democracy? Um, I'm, I'm being a little bit tongue in cheek here, but we're in a situation in the Senate where uh, the Senate being divided 50-50 has produced probably the most uh, responsive Senate that we've had in a very long time. Um, and one of the, one of the uh, issues that's come out of that is a desire on the part of Mitch McConnell, who's about to become minority leader of Mitch McConnell, um, to preserve the filibuster. The filibuster is a rule in the Senate, uh, which basically means that most legislative affairs can't continue without the support of 60 senators rather than the typical 51 uh, or 50 plus a tie-breaking uh, vice president that you would need to get things done. And this uh, two days ago, Mitch McConnell backed off of his demands uh, for a promise to maintain the filibuster from Democrats. So... What what should I read into this, guys? Does this mean that the filibuster is on the chopping block, or um, is that was this just what, 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 how how do I interpret the Connell backing down on this issue? I mean, I I guess I'm not sure why he I'm, I'm not sure what he hoped to gain in the initial one. Maybe in the initial like sort of demand with that. Uh, maybe Matt has some take on this, but. You know, the, the reality was it's not going away right now, right? Because um, we knew Joe Manchin was opposed to it going away. Even Joe, Joe Biden has said he doesn't think this is a good idea. And Kristen Sinema also added her voice to say, like, I'm not going to vote to get rid of the filibuster. So that's two Democrats who have said we're not doing it. So basically what, you know, McConnell's looking at is like, well, it's not going to happen right now because there's two Democrats opposing it. And I can get my caucus to oppose that idea. Right. So so Schumer can't get rid of the filibuster right now. Um what he was hoping to gain from some sort of promise from Schumer to never do this. I'm not really sure because I mean, like you could always back off from this later and change your mind. It's not like that's never happened before in the Senate's history, right? On things that people said, well, we'll never do this. And then they do it. Um, so I'm, yeah, I don't, I'm a little puzzled by what he was hoping other than maybe to highlight just how important this is. I don't know, Matt, do you have a take on that? I, I don't know. Um, exactly what i mean he might have thought well you kind of have to try right yeah um, he is an institutionalist and and yeah. sort of the filibuster even though it had a very bizarre beginning is a um, an accidental beginning even is um has been a part of the senate for a very long time and it's his advantage right. to try to preserve it i i don't think he thought he was gonna get out of it. but basically he but basically, you know, the reason he backed down is because um, we know that Joe Manchin and Kristen Cinema 
stated that they do not want to end the filibuster. Right. So basically, you know, Schumer isn't going to say, sure, buddy, we won't end the filibuster. You know, <laughs> you can have the ability to veto. Like he knows he probably knew that wasn't going to happen. But but we do know that he backed down because ultimately sort of two key, you know, moderate Democratic senators who have now a lot of power, right, right. Um, said, we don't want to end the filibuster. Um, and basically that means that even if, Schumer wanted to end the filibuster. He couldn't because he would need Manchin and Cinema to basically be on board to vote to change the Senate rules to axe the filibuster. And they've said that they don't want to. So that's basically good enough for McConnell for right now. Right. So basically, kind of as I said, like Schumer's not going to get, you know, a promise. And um, excuse me, McConnell's not going to get a promise from Schumer, but the filibuster isn't going to be taken off the table yet. So basically, it's. Um, you know, the sort of Damocles sort of hanging over, you know, the, the Republicans of the Senate, like you obstruct too much. We're going to drop this thing on you. Um, yeah, and right. so it's we're going to be in a sort of a, a t very tenuous um, sort of situation um, moving forward. Um, so yep. we'll, we'll see. Yep. It's um, it's going to be a, a very sort of a tit for tat kind of game. In um, as as international relations, I would think about this, or maybe even like a um, both sides sort of daring the other one to see how far they can go to push this, how um, how obstructionist versus um, how much they can push it before they might invoke this kind of question again. Uh, but, but this raises this does seem to me to suggest that uh, some of the more um, progressive ideas bandied about. Uh, within the Democratic caucus are essentially also DOA now. I saw there was a piece of legislation introduced to make D.C. the 51st state. That is functionally dead. There's no way you're going to get uh, a D.C. statehood with a filibuster intact. It's just, I don't th I don't think you'd get it even if you didn't have a filibuster, but you definitely aren't going to get it now. Yeah. Um, you're not going to get... Um, uh, pa a court packing. You're not going to get a, a statehood for uh, for Puerto Rico or or really any or anything else of the more progressive sort of institutional structural change that was talked about within the Democratic caucus. What you're probably going to get is COVID relief. Um, you're probably going to get um, the basic normal uh, uh, funding bills that Congress puts out. You're probably going to get um, a continued increase in defense spending, um, something that the international relations folks like me are paying attention to, but probably not some of these deeper structural changes. Right. Yeah, yeah that, that's good. And, and I think, you know, where, what you might see is if there is basically a key piece of sort of legislation that's a, a part of Biden's sort of core agenda for the first two years, and Schumer knows he's got 50 Democratic votes for it. So Manchin, Cinema, they're on board, but he's not sure if he's going to be able to break a potential Republican filibuster. Then he might sort of create a little carve out to say we're ending. We're not going to sort of use the filibuster is not going to be optional on this particular piece of legislation. And then basically the Democrats, including Manchin and Cinema, would say like, well, we're not actually the filibuster for everything. We're just going to sort of carve out this little exception for right. this yep. policy here. Yep. And then they can, you know, feel comfortable and good about it. Um, and the filibuster is preserved overall. And that's kind of what's been going on for a while is like the filibuster has been slowly chipped away. Right. 
um, for various sorts of policies when it was in the advantage of the majority to do so when they didn't have any other options. So, so you might get that or you might get sort of the creative sort of expansion of the reconciliation process, um, which again, a lot basically has a similar sort of effect in which the, the, you know, the party and the majority can pass something um, without sort of the 60 vote cloture requirement to end debate. Um, as long as it's sort of budget related, right? A budget bill. But, you know, we've sort of been creatively expanding what can be included within budget proposals. Um, so you can yep. potentially see some sort of economic related policy sort of included in that. So, um, so what this is going to do, though, is it's going to, it is going to limit the sorts of legislation that Biden can really expect to get through. Yep. So with that in mind, uh, and I sort of previewed this a little bit. What should we be expecting legislatively from a Biden administration? Um, there's not a call to do, I mean, obviously he's going to be uh, focused dramatically for this first year on COVID relief um, and relief related to the uh, the economic effects brought about by the pandemic. Is that it? Is, is, is his administration basically responding to the pandemic or are there other kinds of legislative agenda items that he reasonably could pursue that aren't DOA, but that are possible that he might want to seek um, public assessment on? I, I think, I mean, I think it's going to eat up a lot of energy between the pandemic, trying to deal with the pandemics as a health crisis, right? And then trying to deal with the impact of the pandemic on the economy, right? Which we just had numbers come out about, you know, 3.5% is how much the economy shrunk in 2020, right? That's the worst since World War II, um, right? So that's, I mean, this is, this is big, right? And, and it's not one big thing, it's two big things. They're interrelated, um, but they are separate issues, right? I mean, like, how do you, how do you try to get to us to a place where we have a reasonable level of herd immunity? And how do you deal with the economic crisis? I mean, this consumed much of Donald Trump's last um, year in the presidency. And I think it's going to, it's fair to say it's going to consume the early days of Biden's, right? And the early days are when you get the big things done, right? I mean, that's, that typically is when, if you're going to pass something big, you know, you think Trump's tax cuts, think Obama's, you know, healthcare, um, you know, that, that, the working on that gets done in the first year or so, right? And then by the time you get to, you know, middle of really the early part of next year, we're going to be heading toward midterms, right? So I, I'll be kind of surprised if we get major things. I think you're going to get those things. I think you're going to have, as we've already seen, a lot of executive orders of Biden trying to, you know, do what he views as correcting course on a number of things where he thinks Trump was off base. And when you add all that up, that's going to be a ton of energy. It's hard to, for me to see what else he tries to do. Um, that you know beyond that yeah yeah i agree um covid related um economic related uh, sort of stimulus um mm -hmm. you, you'll probably actually see some um might see some bipartisanship on trade um so especially regarding china um might see some foreign policy stuff um um but yeah i think and probably also um you're going to see a, a um, sort of a, a tax bill um, to involve raising taxes. I would be be shocked if we didn't have that in some form. Sure. Sure. Um, and and that's going to be easy to pass because that will be done by reconciliation. Um, so so Republicans will have very little ability to extract right. concessions there. Right. Um, so so yeah, I, I think you're going to see sort of. Yeah that sort of legislation um and and so what biden's going to do is he's going to basically do what presidents have been doing for a while now and that's going to be sort of relying very heavily on executive orders to really sort of um to implement sort of the, the things that that he really wants to do 
Right. And I think the tax in the tax bill will likely come as part of a bigger package to deal with economic, you know, the economic crisis. Right. And that's that's yeah. how we framed the problem. So um, three things that might come down the pipe, I think, but they were paying attention to. First, I'll echo what you're saying. Uh, already, we've seen two of Biden's biggest foreign policy uh, cabinet members be confirmed. Tony Blinken was confirmed as Secretary of State. Uh, Linda Thomas-Greenfield was confirmed as a UN ambassador. And both of them, in one form or another, basically said Trump's approach to China was right on principle and wrong on execution or wrong on tone. Right, that they're going to be more diplomatic. They're going to work with our allies. They're going to be less combative. But taking a, a firm stance on China international trade is something that they look forward to continuing. So we're not going to see a reversal on that. So, I uh, of the various um, epithets lobbed at Joe Biden, uh, Beijing Joe is probably not going to be one that sticks very well. <laughs> right. Um, and the Biden administration has already criticized the uh, economic sanctioning of former Trump administration officials, and uh, they've saber rattled over Chinese um, uh, 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 military uh, forces crossing into Taiwanese uh, airspace. So um, tensions, or I should say at least uh, a firm hand against China is continuing. But here's here's some things I think you could see, and I, I want to see what you think the likelihood of these things are. The, the Biden administration has already signaled that they want to pursue uh, substantive immigration reform. And this is often a place where presidential uh, a political will goes to die. Um, nevertheless, um, uh, this is something that they have pushed for. There's actually a plan for immigration reform, so be interested to see if the House takes that up. Um, the second area is climate change. The uh, Biden administration has has uh, pushed substan substantial institutional capital as well as airtime about um, addressing climate change. And this might go into sort of a, an economic bill or a jobs bill, right? Because they're pitching this as a sort of a green economy, not a Green New Deal per se, but uh, greening uh, economic uh, policy. Yep. And, and the third one that I think we're starting to see a little bit more energy on, although less than the first two, is dealing with student debt, which is also seen as an economic issue as well. But there have been some proposals about um, either forgiving or canceling a certain portion of student debt as part of an economic relief package. And I'm curious to see if you think any of these ideas might actually have traction within the first two years of, um, of this Congress. No, yes, sort of. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I could say more. But. Yeah. So you're saying you're saying no to immigration. Immigration is is uh, is is um, not going to move forward. Yeah. No. Other than executive orders, right? Which he's already doing. I think that that's sure. how we're going to see immigration immigration dealt with. Which means that you know, four, eight, whatever years from now, when the presidency changes, um, you know, then it it could all shift again. Right. I mean, I, I agree. I just cannot see the will of Congress to deal with that. And with all the other things we have going on, like how that makes it high enough on the priority list. It's just hard to see. I feel like the, I agree with Matt that the climate change may be because it, it, it could get packaged in with economic stuff. Right. And that fits. I mean, so I think that's, that's the successful way you, you do that. You kind of frame it as economic necessity. Um, Student loan, I don't know. Like, I mean, it feels like you might sell this more if it was like, well, for low income, right? But, but it, it ends. It's. I wonder if you're gonna get like Republicans are gonna be ner nervous about it because like we're just canceling debt. Does that doesn't seem fiscally responsible. And then Democrats might start looking and saying like, are we are we just gonna end up helping a lot of 
rich kids who don't really need mm. to do this. Um, so I, I feel like there's a lot of barriers to that too. Um, yeah. On the, yeah, I agree. On the last point, I think if you do see student debt relief, uh, well, I mean, so already Biden has basically extended sort of um, forbearance through September. But if you yeah. get sort of more substantive relief, what it would be is it probably wouldn't be more than $10,000. And then yeah. there would be um, a, an income cap, right? So you're only eligible to receive this if you're below a certain income level, lower than than what some of the other proposals have been floating around. So, so it's going to be a relatively small amount because there's research that shows like it's the people who have above $10,000 of student loan debt tend to actually be like middle class and above and they don't really yeah. need the help as much. So so really by, by putting an income cap and then keeping it to $10,000, that's going to help sort of the lowest income people the most is the idea. Um, so, and I think it would have to be lumped in with some other legislation. So I don't think you're going to get more than that on, on student loans and immigration is just, it, it's, I mean, I'm just getting the sense that um, there, you know, partisanship is still very much alive and well uh, and kicking in the House and the Senate, and yep. there's just not political will to, to deal with with immigration. So, so it's going to be yep. a combination of executive orders and then court cases, which is kind of what we've had for the past, well, 20 years anyway. Really? Yeah. So, guys, every couple of months, I read a think piece from somebody on the political right, usually a, mo a political moderate on the right, who says. For the Republican Party to thrive and endure, it has to come to grips with this anti-immigration sentiment, that there are plenty of um, Americans, especially uh, uh, Latino Americans, who would like to vote for the Republican Party based on social issues, based on economic issues, but they're continually put off by this anti-immigration stance. And it's time for the Republican Party to basically become more pro-immigrant. You're saying because of Trump or because of something else? that that's just not viable in the short term. I'm just, I'm not sure it's totally right. I mean, like it's a, cause for one thing, I mean like the, the counter narrative is, Hey, Trump seemed to actually do better among minorities than some Republicans. Right. Despite, or maybe because, I mean, maybe like, why did he do that? Right. Even though he's, he's out there as this kind of very clearly, you know, anti-immigrant rhetoric kind of person. Right. I mean, he's, he's on record saying a lot of things that are, rather you know disturbing right on that in that regard so i just don't know that i don't know that that narrative is catching hold in the republican party itself i mean like yes there are certainly those people out there saying that whether they're really driving the party i, I just don't think so so yeah i don't think they are um and i mean it is interesting that you know trump's rhetoric you know did not have the negative impact that everyone thought it was going to um, right. It is interesting if you look at a number of people who have immigrated here, who at least respond to polls, is they tend to support, you know, stronger yeah. immigration policy, yeah. <laughs> you know, depending on depending yeah. on the group. So, um, so, you know, I think if, yeah, if, if the GOP yeah. did find a way to tone down sort of the, um, you know, the, the elements that sound right. more racialized or yeah. Yeah. Uh, sort of opposition to all immigration right and right. specifying we want sort of secure borders mm -hmm. and efficient legal immigration i think if the gop pivoted to that um it would be fantastic for them um it'd be a fantastic strategy but but it's not yeah. happening um the reasons for that are would be interesting to discuss mm -hmm. all right guys we got two more things to cover i want to do the first one lightning round okay um, 
This is base speculation. When do we first hear someone seriously ask Joe Biden whether he's running in 2024 or not? <laughs> this is a very slow lightning. Does it happen before the Minnesota snow melts? I don't. Yeah, I just don't know. It's hard to say. I don't think he wants to say before 23. That's no, of course. But but whether, and I think his his answer should be, I'm focused on being president, and I'm not going to talk about that. Yeah. Um. Mm -hmm. So I don't know beyond that. Like I think you got to get to 23 and then see where things are. Right. I mean, see how Joe Biden's health is. See how the country's doing. You know. There's a lot of things, right, that could play. And see yeah. some, of, some of what we've seen with Donald Trump, how that's played out, right? I mean, that, you know, that makes a difference. Like, it makes a difference for Biden, honestly, if he's running, if, if in 24 it looks like he's going to run against 78-year-old Donald Trump, in which case his age is not that much of an issue, right? Um, mm -hmm. Or if he's going to run against, you know, 40-something, 50-something-year-old, you know, fill in the blank, right? Nikki Haley. Right. Um, Ted Cruz, whoever, right? Probably not Ted Cruz, but um, <laughs> so, never, never say never. No, I, I've learned that with thank you, Donald Trump. <laughs> um, but you know, so I think that makes a difference. There's a lot of factors, so he just needs to defer that. I mean, whether people ask him or not, yeah, uh, I don't know. I mean, I think it's going to be, I mean, there's always going to be some, you know, beltway types that are going to be, you know, rumor mill. Um, sort of discussion of, Ooh, you know, what's he, what are the tea leaves on yeah. what he's going to do and what's, what's his, what's his committee and fundraising, you know, army. Yeah. Like, there's going to be plenty of that. Um, I don't think it's going to seriously ramp up for another year. I would say maybe once we start getting into the primaries for the midterms, then you're going to start seeing more open discussion because kind of then people are th will have sort of, you know, cause it's really the first year that's critical for Biden, how successful he is. Yep. I think we have to get through, this, this honeymoon period of trying to get legislation passed, get through the pandemic, yeah. um, set our sights on the the next midterms before we start getting any sort of serious discussion. Um, so that's that's my guess. Yeah. But what do I you think? I think there's going to be more pressure than you guys think. Um, and it wouldn't surprise me if there's a serious push from within the year. I think there's going to be a serious push for, for for Biden to state definitively. And I think what we're going to wait on uh, will be an early success or early failure in the coronavirus relief process. If it looks like it's going well, if it looks like there are, we're set up that it, uh, economically, perhaps, that we might be in for a V-shaped recovery. And if, a, and if in a, you know, if we're kind of cruising through Halloween 21, where uh, really 100 million or more Americans have been vaccinated, herd immunity is kicking in, hospitalization rates are way down, kids are back in school, the economy is really rebounded. I think there'll be pressure on Joe Biden to announce that he's running for re-election. And if he's not, um, to name an heir apparent, possibly someone inside his own administration. Um, and if that, any of that has gone badly, to announce that he's going to be a one-term president. And basically to bear the brunt of this whole process so that by the time the recovery has has really gotten traction in 2022, um, somebody else is able to run to take credit for that. Yeah. It's just, yeah. It's, it's such a downside. If like, if you declare you're not running, I mean, you become a lame duck and it really does limit 
your effectiveness, I think. And so yep. I, I think that's why I think, I mean, he's, he has got like, I, there may be pressure there. He has got to discipline himself, which hasn't always been Biden's strength either. Right. Um, <laughs> he does not shut about this until 23. I mean, I don't think you can push it past 23, but I think you have to push it to 23. The other thing is like, it's a fool's errand, right. To declare you are running in 21 or 22, right. When you're, pushing 80 right i mean like yep. no, i agree moves, right i mean like you know like i mean you know life is uncertain for all of us but joe biden is a man near the end of his life right and, and i'm not mm -hmm. in bad health right now but he is old yep. um and so like health can turn down quickly especially at that age so yeah i mean i i think you, you may well be right about that i wouldn't be surprised if there's that kind of pressure but i think he has got to do everything possible to not to go there <laughs> It's yeah. just, there's no yeah. there, there's no upside for him and his administration, and there are tons of downsides. Oh, I agree. I don't think he wants to announce. I think you guys are absolutely right on what he would like his strategy to be. But I think there's going to be several sources of external pressure on him. Sure. Yeah, yeah. I think there may be. So, and, he, sorry, and he's just going to say no. He's the president. So do you guys, I know this is kind of going back to one of the other little items on our agenda, um, but do you guys think Biden's going to be sort of successful? Like what, what would it take for Biden to be sort of a successful president? What, how should we yeah. be thinking about as we look forward to the next four years, what we should be expecting of him, not merely in is he going to be successful in achieving his own goals? But, you know, what are those goals? And, and maybe in a more objective sense as well. Yeah. I thought about, I wrote, I saw your question and I, I've thought about this. And my sense is that success is, is more and more as, as polarization increases in the eye of the beholder. Sure. There is a certain section of Americans who were going to give Biden a passing grade almost no matter what happens because he's not Donald Trump. Right, and he's going to get. He's he's he already has a popularity rating which is higher than anything Trump achieved during his presidency, yep. and he he really is um he really is benefiting from the the next boyfriend uh, uh hypothesis <laughs> right um the the last boyfriend was so bad that the the, the next boyfriend's going to get a lot of credit just just by being a boring normal guy um and. That said, because Trump does have this core of support, you know, 80% of Republicans, 56% yeah. already want him to be the nominee in 2024. Right. Joe, Joe Biden could go down as one of the legislative geniuses of the, you know, he could be one of the top 10 greatest presidents in American history. And they're never going to see him as anything other than um, a usurper who stole the election. Uh, yeah. the, so the question is, can we step outside of that? You know, bipartisanship. Uh, some outside of that that polar that polarized uh, bifurcation, and say, is there something that political scientists would look at and say that that Biden is is successful? And I would, I guess, I would say the early test is going to be the ability to move the United States past the the pandemic. Uh, he has to accomplish that, and he really has to accomplish it substantively in his first year. Yeah. Um, and then I think uh, beyond that, we'd say. Is, is he able to restore a sense of normalcy to the presidency and reestablish norms of governance? I don't, I think you guys are right. He has very limited ability to be, to sort of be sweeping in his legislative impact. Yeah. But can he restore American diplomatic norms? Can he restore American legislative norms? Um, and if he can begin to do some of those things and right already, the record is mixed, right? Um, he perpetuated uh, Trump's uh, violation of the norm of the secretary of defense by confirming Lloyd Austin. 
Um, he signed a bunch of executive orders, which is a recognition of, of political exigency, but it's not um, it's not reestablishing those norms. Right. So he if he does some of those things, if he's able to sort of reestablish those things and basically return America away from sort of a sort of a populist binge, I'd say that's success. But I don't know what do you guys think. Yeah, I think I basically agree with that. I mean, like that's and that's probably the highest level of success he's likely to get. I think where he could I mean, obviously get downgraded if he fails in that, right? If, if COVID just continues to be an issue, if a year from now we're still masking and, you know, there, we're still having all these issues, like that's going to be a big problem for him. If the economy doesn't significantly recover, that's going to be a problem. Um, I think another way he gets judged as a failure potentially is he could do all that and still be judged as a failure within his own party for not going sufficiently left, right? I mean, like, so he deals mm -hmm. with that. And I think that's a real danger for him. Um, it might well be good for the country, right? I, I, I tend to think it would be, but but I think there's going to be people within his own party who are going to say, like, you didn't do any of the things we really wanted, right? You didn't get a student debt relief. You haven't done anything about the environment, right? You haven't taken us further left on kind of, you know, um, sort of ways we think of the, about human humanity kind of. Um, and so I think there's going to be some real disappointment there if he doesn't go there. And I'm not sure, as we said, I don't think, I don't know how much capacity he's going to have to go there. I mean, he's, he's got all these big other big things he has to deal with. Um, and he has to get Joe Manchin to vote for things that he wants yep. through Congress. How far can he go? So since I'm a, um, a political philosopher, I okay. tend to take the very sort of broad view um, of sort of, you know, what's the most important thing for sort of political social cohesiveness, right? So, um, so, you know, so Chris said, you know, COVID, the economy, we got to get things back on track. I agree. He's going to be judged in large part about his ability to do that um, by both parties, right? Um, and norms, right? So this is, this is getting one level deeper, right? You know, it's probably going to be a mixed bag. Um, you know, I, I don't think we have any reason to believe that Biden's going to go around sort of blowing up norms the way Trump does and so did. So yep. I expect him to be better at that. Do I expect a fantastic track record? Probably not. Um, but we shall see what happens. But then, you know, to go one level deeper, um, um, polarization, is he going to find ways to sort of depolarize our situation? This, this gets to, kind of to Andy's point. Or is he going to, you know, basically track continually sort of leftward with his party? Um, and implement policies that are going to be more polarizing, or is he going to try to sort of, you know, hold off, hold off the the left or side of his party? And I don't think he will ever be as far left as many as his party want. But I don't think he has the ability to sort of true stay within the true middle, right? And to try yeah. to move his party yeah. that direction. What we know about Joe Biden is, even though in recent history he's taken a moderate sort of tone, right, which is yep. great. It brings down the temperature, um, but he has always stayed sort of squarely within the the middle of his party, with not within the middle of the United States, the, the median right. voter, but within right. the median voter of the Democratic Party, right? Yeah. And the Democratic Party has shifted left, and so as the yep. Democratic Party has shifted left over the past thirty years, so has Joe Biden, um, yep. Yep. and so you know, basically, I think he's going to be under such enormous pressure from. Yep from the left that he's going to basically try to implement policies that are very polarizing. And we've already seen examples yeah. of this um, with yeah. some of his, some of his, um, um, some of the executive orders related to transgender rights related yeah. to abortion, basically um, 
basically that's just going to give juice to to the right side saying the liberals are taking over and ruining our country right and mm -hmm. and i think they have some real concerns and some of those concerns are really legitimate um yep. and and biden is tracking leftward so so i hold out very little hope guys that that biden is going to be able to sort of pull us back from um from the increasing polarization that we had seen i'd hoped maybe that he would but i just see precious little sign that that's going to happen just based off of what i've seen over the past week so right. and that's I mean, disappointing but it's really not surprising right and he can't do both right i mean like he's either gonna he's either gonna try to depolarize and we'll see how much success he can have there and i'm not that optimistic about that although he, maybe he can lower the tone a little bit um or he can try to please the left wing of his party um, he cannot do both of those things. I'm not convinced he can do either of them because I'm not mm -hmm. sure how much he can really do with the left wing other than executive orders, which would make them somewhat happy, but won't be, you know, enduring really. Um, and I'm just not sure we can be depolarized. So I think his best strategy is kind of coming back to Chris's original take, right? It's just sort of like, think about, you know, the crises of our time, how can you make those better? And if he does those, he can be a, a president who's got approval ratings in the low 50, low to mid fifties, um, which is very solid for this this era in our history. Um, and, you know, I think he'll be at least solidly considered by history. Um, that's probably his best bet. <laughs> How weird would it be, guys, if Joe Biden does what we just said? He, the coronavirus resolves itself, perhaps with some uh, federal government help uh, in terms of vaccination and economic stimulus and so forth. And Joe Biden does well, uh, or his party does well relative to historical expectations in the 2022 midterms. Let's mm -hmm. say they don't lose any seats in the in the House and maybe they pick up one or two Senate seats like that. That would be pretty successful for a party, uh, a party in the in the White House during a, a, a midterm. Right. Yep. Yep. And then, and then Joe Biden decides because of his age not to run for reelection. Leaves on pretty good terms. Maybe approval ratings in the 55, 56 yeah. range. Right. And yep. then Donald Trump wins the presidency again. All of these things are live possibilities. I, oh, you yeah. can imagine, you can imagine a world in which all of those things happen uh, in sequence. Right. Yep. Yeah. 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 I mean, right. we're working on razor thin margins for all of these things, right? Mm -hmm. So it doesn't take much to tip us one way or the other from year right. to year. That's right. true. But gosh, guys, just just think like, what if we had a president of either party who just said, you know what? I'm not catering to the crazies in my party because there's craziness on both sides, and oh, I'm yeah. just gonna go for fairly middle of the road, not super liberal, not super conservative, sort of economic policies, just some good governance. And this is what mm -hmm. my party is going to be about. They would be able to take over Congress and dominate. Right. But here's the problem. As long as we have crazies on both sides that vote in primaries and basically control the mm -hmm. primary, it's not going to happen. Right. Cause you know, Joe Biden, I think, you know, wouldn't mind in some sense, you know, governing a little bit more on the moderate lane. And, yeah. and there's some Republicans that wouldn't mind that. And there's some Democrats that wouldn't mind that, but they are not going to be able to survive in their primaries guys. And that's, well, I, I, I want to say a di something different than that though. Actually, I, I think that to the extent those people exist, they exist in the electorate. I'm not sure how many of them exist in the house right now. Oh, yeah, right. For sure. Right. right. I mean, so what we're talking about here is there's this there's this sort of big mass of American electorate that sort of leans left or leans right, but all things considered, they'd they'd love to vote for somebody who's kind of middle of the road. 
but we're not putting those people on the ballot anymore. Right. It's hard for them to get on the ballot. Exactly. 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 Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Uh, yeah, I'm not sure you could get things through Congress, right? Even though, even though people, yeah, I'm just not sure there's enough of those people, right? It's like the hard right, hard left, right. are are growing segments of the party, especially in the House. I mean, yeah. Well, guys, um, we we need to sign off here pretty quickly, but before we go, if we had a bumper, a music bumper, and I'm not going to make Sam do this, um, we would have uh, Hosier's uh, "Take Me to Church," because Andy, uh, you're about to embark on a sabbatical project that involves um, some of our religious institutions. So tell us a little bit about where you're going and why you're leaving the podcast. Only <laughs> temporarily, Chris. Um, so yes, I am on sabbatical this spring. Uh, this is my first sabbatical in my Bethel tenure. Um, they normally come on your seventh year. It's my eighth, but I deferred it for a year because of- He's smiling uh, so big right now, guys. Know, it's fun. Um, I, I still have a little bit of grading to do and then I will be really on sabbatical. Anyway, um, but my project actually relates to what we've just been talking about. He's applying sunscreen to his nose as we're talking. <laughs> No, I'm still in Minnesota. I've, I was applying lotion earlier because my pants were dry um, in January. But um, no, so this relates to the, the political polarization problem that we've just been talking about. And one of the things I've been concerned about as a both a political scientist and especially as a Christian is what is the impact this is having on um, us as Christians and in particular on the church, right? And on um, you know, local churches, what does this look like, right? And I think there's there's two sides to this. I mean, one is obviously, and this is really my primary concern at some levels, what impact does this have on the church as the body of Christ, right? That we have these political divisions and they, they get into the church and they impact us. And we've talked before on this podcast about how sometimes our, our political and ideological positions end up shaping us even more than our faith, which is really disturbing when you think about the fact that as Christians, we are called to be followers of Christ and that ought to be our, our primary identity, right? That, that ought to be what defines everything else and not the other way around. So I'm, um, so that's one part of this. And then the other part is obviously you can turn that around and say, well, then, you know, how does all this division and this in our society impact the way that we as Christians, um, you know, engage with society? And so my goal is to kind of probe that and to try to understand that a little more, um, but a particular focus on that first piece, right? Like what, what impact is all this political division, um, this political polarization having on the life of churches? Um, how is it, is it really changing things there? Um, so to do that, I'm obviously looking at the research that's been done, um, the things we know from, from polling and from political science and sociological research and so forth. But I'm also going to be interviewing a lot of pastors in Minnesota. And so hence Chris's um, going to church reference, right? I will actually literally be going to churches um, to visit with pastors, um, sometimes in person, sometimes, of course, I'll be joining them in their office via the mechanism we've all become so familiar with um, of Zoom. Uh, <laughs> oh, no. Uh, oh, yes. Um, and so I'll be talking to them about this and saying, like, what's going on in your churches? How, how are you seeing this play out? Um, and I'm curious to just understand kind of, you know, where is it causing challenges? Where is it not? Um, and to try to understand that better. And so I hope to come back on this podcast um, in a few months um, and um, and talk about kind of what I've what I've found. But in the meantime, I will be signing off for a while. Um, one of the goal, other goals of sabbatical, in addition to giving you space to pursue research in new ways, um, is also to get a time of rest, to kind of rejuvenate and come back 
to my teaching, um, kind of re-energized, ready for another seven years. Um, and so, uh, you know, I think that's, I, I want to kind of create some new rhythms as I do that. So I'll be, I'll be coming to my office some probably, but not nearly as much, not normally during working hours. Um, and I'm also going to step aside from this podcast just as a way of kind of, um, you know, giving myself a new rhythm for the next three, four months. Well, I'll just say we support your desire to uh, renew and refresh. Um, we will keep your seat warm for you. Uh, you. Even though Andy is stepping away in sabbatical, uh, we will not be ending this podcast. Yeah. Uh, we will be continuing. Um, Matt and I are at work on some of the things we want to continue to cover. Uh, so you'll still be, we'll still be in your podcast feed. We'll still be part of channel 3900 too. Um, and you might hear some uh, um, some old familiar voices as part of the podcast and maybe some guests as well. So uh, we're excited to, get, to keep talking about some of these things in our feed. And our goal is to say so many things that so incense Andy that when he comes <laughs> back after his sabbatical, he will just have multiple podcasts of soliloquies just saved up for us. Uh, that's, that's, that's the goal. Um, Although this assumes hey. that he's actually going to listen to our podcast. That's right. He's right. <laughs> <laughs> no comment. <laughs> there we go. Good point. Good point. All right, guys. Thanks for listening to us. You can always get a hold of uh, Election Shock Therapy um, at electionshocktherapy at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. We uh, love chatting with each other about some of these issues. We hope we're um, helping you make sense of our political world around us and what we should really be caring about and really be valuing. Mm. Uh Pay attention to some of the other stuff that's happening in the podcast channel as well. Uh, we've got a lot of great podcasts uh, coming down the pipe, Bookish at Bethel, um, Avatar with Academics, um, Video Store, and lots of other things as well. So uh, make sure you check out the whole channel, Channel 3900. You can also reach out to the channel at channel3900 at com. Thanks for listening. Happy sabbatical, Professor Bramson. And until we're back in our podcast feed again, go Royals. Go Royals.